Chapter Eighteen of the Flint Heart by Eden Philpotts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen: The Jackie Toad Fails. Our first question, began De Quincey, belongs to the physical branch of the subject, namely, what is the size in square miles of the United States of America? The Galloper did not even make a shot at this terrific question. I don't know at all, he said. Mark that, your majesty, he doesn't know everything after all, said de Quincey rather unkindly. Of course he doesn't, answered the king. Who does, excepting the Zagabog? Next question. The examiner marked up a big zero and proceeded. What is the difference between a peninsula and an isthmus? That's a riddle, said the king. I won't have riddles asked at a serious time like this. Next question. What is the difference, began De Quincey again, but the king stopped him. I tell you, I won't have it, he said. What does the prisoner know of volcanoes, then? Continued the examiner. He was feeling rather like a volcano himself by this time. An excellent question, said the king. What does the prisoner know of volcanoes? Unfortunately, Marsh Galloper knew nothing about them. The king frowned, and the hearts of all the Jackie Toads sank. For the benefit of my subjects in general, I may say that the extinct volcanoes are found generally on the mainland, while the active volcanoes, save one, occur on islands, continued the king. Etna, in Sicily, is the largest in Europe for the moment. But you never know what may happen. Dartmoor was a volcano once. Proceed. But I really cannot tell you much more about the geography paper, because it is too painful. De Quincey kept asking questions, and the Galloper couldn't answer any of them, because the only geography that he knew had been taught him by the hot water bottle, and it concerned nothing but Germany. A fearful row of big zeros appeared on the board, and at last the Galloper, in a voice of anguish, cried out, May it please your gracious royal majesty, let me ask him something for a change. Ridiculous nonsense, cried De Quincey. What next, I should like to know? Who ever heard of a person who is being examined asking the examiner a question? Such a thing never was known to happen, your majesty. Well, answered the king, because a thing never happened, that's no reason why it never should. Let us be broad-minded and welcome novelties. It is quite too absurd to suppose that the prisoner who has only been learning geography for a fortnight can ask you anything you don't know. Of course it is, answered De Quincey. Then let him go ahead, ordered the king, and Marsh Galloper instantly began. What be the names of the six grand duchies of the German Empire? he said. A capital question, cried the king, opening his manual. 
but de Quincey had not the slightest idea of the answer. He frowned and coughed and blew his nose and curled his whiskers and then laughed and said, What an extraordinary thing if they haven't quite slipped out of my memory for the moment. Ask him another, said the king. What do we know of Baden? inquired the galloper. Baden? asked de Quincey, to gain time. Es, Baden, answered the jacky toad. Well, um, let me see. Tut, tut. What a memory I've got, said the examiner royal. On the tip of my tongue, too. So were the answers to all your questions on the tip of my tongue, I do assure ye. But I couldn't manage to get em off, said the galloper. Since my examiner royal does not know anything about Baden, I may tell you all that it is the most important watering place in Germany, declared the king dryly. Ask him another. What are the tributaries of the Danube? asked Marsh Galloper. And what sea does it flow into? De Quincey thought he knew this, and so pretended it was an easy question. Every school fairy could answer that, he replied. The tributaries of the Danube are the Moldau and the Eger. Wrong! screamed the galloper. You're mixing it up with the Elbe. It's a pity you were so eager to reply, remarked the king, and there was a great shout of laughter. But it was not wise to make public fun of a great poet pixie for long, and the king knew very well that anybody, no matter how clever, may be made to look foolish if one takes a little trouble to do it. So he announced that the geography examination was ended. The last subject is poetry, said de Quincey, quite humbly. Is it your majesty's wish that I should examine the prisoner in poetry? If you please, replied the king, and he added with his usual tact and kindness, we well know that on the subject of poetry you stand first in our kingdom. De Quincey bowed at this delicate compliment, and the examination continued. In this case, said the examiner, who had evidently profited by his sharp lesson, the simplest plan will be not to ask you what you don't know, but to find out what you do. Bravo! cried the king. The very essence of the examiner's art. Proceed. Let us hear some poetry, please, said de Quincey. We do not expect anything very wonderful in a fortnight, but the great thing is to understand what you know, and not merely to repeat it like a parrot. Marsh Galloper put his paws behind him, and recited the nursery rhymes that Unity had taught him. All went pretty well, and he gained several good marks. There was, in fact, only one little breeze between the king and de Quincey, and it happened in this way. The galloper had correctly recited several classical verses, and then he spoke as follows. Little Miss Muffet, she sat on a tuffet, eating her curds and whey. When there came a great hornet, and played on his cornet, and frightened Miss Muffet away. Wrong, said de Quincey, and he was going to put a big zero when the king gently stopped him. 
"'You are quite right to say that he is wrong,' began the king. "'But perhaps, in actual practice, it would not much matter whether Miss Muffet was alarmed by a spider or a hornet. I mean that the result in either case is the same. Her terror and flight are the dramatic point of the poem, and whether it was the rudeness of a spider sitting down beside her without an invitation, or the stupid practical joke of a hornet in suddenly sounding his cornet close to her ear, appears to me to matter but little. I confess that is how the situation strikes me, as an impartial observer, but if I am mistaken, please correct me." "'Your Majesty is perfectly correct,' replied De Quincey. I had not looked at it in that light. It is a variation of the classical version, but there may be authorities to support it, and as you cleverly point out, the result to the heroine of the poem is the same. The dreadful climax of her terror and flight remains. In any case, declared the queen, variety is charming. Go on, said the examiner royal. Well, I don't know any more, replied Marsh Galloper, but after Unity had taught me these, I made up a little bit of rhyme myself. It bant very clever, of course, but I just mention it to show how terrible hard I have tried. Repeat it, ordered the king, and let nobody laugh. So the prisoner recited these words. Shall I never see my own marsh again, and the hole by the old bog bean? Must I leave my wife behind, who was always good and kind? Shall I never see my own marsh again? Shall I never see my dear friends again, and the skull of the old dead horse? Shall I never wave my light, so blue and queer and bright, from the skull of the old dead horse? Shall I never suck the beautiful mud that abounds at my little front door? Shall I never hop and dance, and sing and leap and prance? Shall I never see my marsh any more? shall I never." Here the king stopped Marsh Galloper. Not another verse, he said. I couldn't stand it. The poem is too pathetic. Not another verse. In fact, the king need not have ordered nobody to laugh. It would have been more to the point if he had ordered nobody to cry, for the Jackie Toad's rhyme had brought tears to the eyes of many among the company. As for Mrs. Marsh Galloper, she cried so bitterly that her niece could not comfort her, and the queen, who was also somewhat moved, sent the poor wife her own bottle of smelling salts by one of the young princes. The form is crude, declared De Quincey, but the sentiment is haunting. It is real poetry, and may have full marks. He chalked up five for the galloper's effort, and then spoke again. The examination is now concluded, and I am about to count up the marks. The maximum is two thousand and seventy-five. The minimum is eighty. I much fear, when the big zeros are added up and subtracted from the marks, 
that we shall find the prisoner has not succeeded. A great silence fell on all the fairies and Jackie Toads, and presently De Quincey, after adding up the knots and subtracting them from the marks, shook his head. Alas, he said, and I think he was really rather sorry, seventy-eight knots from one hundred and twenty marks leaves only forty-two marks. The prisoner has failed. A deep groan burst from Fire Drake and the Galloper's friends. His wife fainted and was carried into an antechamber, and the Galloper himself fell on his knees and lifted his clasped hands to the king and fixed his ruby-red eyes on the royal countenance. Everybody regarded his majesty with deep agitation. A few excitable fairies hissed the examiner royal, but of course he had only done his duty. The king put up his double eyeglasses and calmly looked at the blackboard whereon the figures appeared. Pardon me, he said, and if I am wrong, correct me, but as I think it is you who are mistaken, I must humbly venture to correct you. Now let us see. In the first place, how many knots have you there? Seventy-eight, your majesty, replied the examiner. Very good. Now what do seventy-eight knots come to? Seventy-eight, your majesty. I beg your pardon, replied the king. If I am not gravely in error, seventy-eight knots come to nothing at all. A loud shout ascended, but the king raised his hand for silence. Let us be strictly just, he continued. You will not deny that naught is nothing. That fact is known to everybody. You are misunderstanding me, your majesty, replied de Quincey. However, he continued, using a phrase somewhat similar to that once employed by the great Dr. Johnson, it is not for me to bandy figures with my sovereign. Then, returned the king, let us have a second opinion. I am always reasonable, I hope. Send for Charles. So de Quincey's secretary went out and found Charles fast asleep among the foxgloves. He had grown tired of watching the beasts and weary of wondering what on earth they were all about. But when the secretary woke him, he leapt to his feet and cried, Has he passed? No, said the secretary, he has not. At least my master says he hasn't. But the king isn't too pleased about it, and he wants another opinion. That's why he has sent for you. Charles was reduced to fairy size and accompanied the messenger as quickly as possible. On the way he asked a question. Has de Quincey got the O.M.? No, he hasn't. But he very nearly got into a great mess, replied the secretary. How I did laugh! And I'm afraid he saw me laughing. So no doubt I shall catch it when the examination is over. The king greeted Charles kindly. How do you do, my human boy? he asked. But indeed I need not inquire, for your cheek and your eyes are bright with the glow of health. 
Now, Mr. De Quincey and myself disagree about a question of figures, and it shows how even the simplest things are really difficult, just as the difficultest things are really simple. In one word, then, how much are seventy-eight noughts? Don't answer in a hurry. I think one thing. My examiner royal thinks another. We are both content to abide by your decision. Charles considered, and a great silence fell on the company. At last he spoke. Seventy-eight knots are nothing, your majesty. A roar of applause made the examination hall shake, but the king had his trumpets sounded for silence. Half the problem is now solved, he proceeded, but more remains behind. We have now to subtract the seventy-eight knots from one hundred and twenty marks. You may make your calculations on the blackboard if you think that would be easier. But Charles declared that he could do the second problem in his head, as he had done the first. Seventy-eight knots are nothing subtract nothing from one hundred and twenty, and one hundred and twenty remains, he said. But, but, cried de Quincey, each of these knots signifies a bad mark. They are not really knots. I wonder you don't say they are crosses, said the king. And if they are not knots, what are they? In my mind they stood for, began de Quincey, but the king was quite worn out. He stood up, a signal that the examination was at an end. Life is real, life is earnest, he said, and we cannot go into the question of why a knot isn't a knot in your poetic mind. At any rate, as the king of a great kingdom, I must not permit myself any of these fanciful dialects. Marsh Galloper has got one hundred and twenty marks, and as the minimum was eighty, he has passed. He is, in fact, a free Jacky Toad. Release the prisoner, and tell him to be in my audience chamber at five o'clock tomorrow morning to kiss hands in token of forgiveness. Amid a great hubbub, the Galloper joined his friends and departed with his wife on his arm. The legions of the Jacky Toad shouted and screamed with delight, and Firedrake ran on before to hang up a few flowers and bright leaves about the hole by the bog bean, so that his home might look festive and cheerful on his return to it. He also decorated the galloper's favorite perch on the skull of the old dead horse. The king then turned to Charles. If you like to take us as we are, without ceremony, he said, Her Majesty and I shall be delighted to entertain you at dinner, just the home party and some chamber music afterwards. But Charles felt it would not be fair to Unity and Bismarck if he did this. He explained to the King, and assured him that the others would be terribly anxious to know whether Marsh Galloper had passed. Of course they will, admitted the king, and as the credit is theirs also, we must have you all to visit us on some future occasion. I shall not forget. 
You may expect an invitation in a week or ten days, and I shall in the meantime consider whether some little appropriate distinction may not be dispensed to all three of you. Perhaps the fourth or fifth class of my royal Titanian order would meet the case. So Charles, with many thanks, sped off, full of his great news. But excited though he was, he could not fail to note that things upon the moor and in the woodlands were not as usual. Some places appeared to be entirely deserted, while in others the beasts had gathered together and were evidently holding important meetings among themselves. Many were talking, and many were listening, and all were bothered and worried. Charles wondered not a little what remarkable event could thus upset them, and not the beasts only, but the birds and reptiles and even the insects also. He thought that Ship might probably know what was happening, and asked him as quickly as possible. End of chapter 18